0: don't play this for anybody i don't normally do this
1: i think we're being set up for an ambush dodge this ambushed to be attacked suddenly by someone lying in wait
0: you say well you know the way you preach causes us and them it is us and them apostate someone whose beliefs have changed and who no longer belong to a religious or political group. You side with them, I'll throw you out. Get out!
1: (laughs) Escaping cults. Rejecting delusion. Embracing reality. Breaking the chains. Freeing your mind. And becoming your own person. This is the Ambushed Apostate Podcast. With your host, Seth Henderson.
0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Ambush Depostate podcast. My name is Seth, and before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's here today, to everyone who clicked on this content and has decided to give me a little bit of your valuable time to address cults and other destructive groups. Thank you to everyone who reached out to me with both support and encouragement from the first episode, as well as some constructive criticism. And as much as I appreciate the messages of support and encouragement, I equally appreciate the constructive criticism. Because now I know what needs to be modified or clarified moving forward. I received a message from someone close to me. And this person says, basically, Hey, I listened to your first podcast. And it just seems to me that you're lumping all religions into a group of. And calling them cults. I want to be very clear and say that that is not my intention. That is not what I believe. That's not what the science reflects. That's not what the data shows. And so this episode is going to be based around how you can tell the difference between a religious group and a cult. How you can differentiate between normal, rational ideology and destructive cult ideology to underline this point i'm going to say again i do not believe and i am not saying in any way shape or form that just because a person is religious that they are in a cult i am not saying that just because someone is political they are in a cult just because you're a christian does not make you a cult member that is not and will never be my stance Because it doesn't line up with the data and the science behind this topic and within this community. But it is important to lay the foundation before we really move into this content that I'm trying to create. To make sure everyone knows how to tell the difference between what a religious group is and what a cult is. So we're going to spend some time today talking about how to tell the difference. And then we're going to move into a more detailed look... Of Dr. Hassan's bite model of authoritarian control. As we discussed in the last episode, the bite model is the industry standard to determine cult behavior. But we're also going to be taking a look at another piece of Dr. Hassan's work. This is called the influence continuum. The influence continuum is used in conjunction with the BITE model to further determine whether your group is a healthy normal group or a destructive cult group. Over the next five episodes, we're going to break down the BITE model and the influence continuum so that we can build a good foundation before we start digging into these groups on a more detailed level. This episode will be behavioral control, or the B-B. I will give a couple of examples for some of these behaviors, but this episode and the following four episodes are intended to get you familiar with the ins and outs of the byte model itself. So as I said before, we're zooming in, but we're not zooming all the way in quite yet. So let's get on with it. What is the difference between a cult group and a regular normal group? The answer is really not that simple. It's not cut and dry. It's not, yes, this is a cult. No, this is not a cult. I wish it was. It would make this a lot easier for everybody involved. But I view this sort of like a game of golf. You want to have a low score at the end of the hole. The higher your score, the worse you've done. So that's how I'm going to frame this topic to try to make it as easy to understand as I can. There are a couple basic rules of thumb that will help you determine the difference between these two type of groups without doing too much digging into them. First and foremost, if a group will not allow someone to leave peacefully, that's probably a cult group. When you decide to leave a group you've joined, if the group you are in attempts to keep you there against your will, or if they attempt to shame you or guilt you for even considering leaving the group. That's a problem. As I discussed last week, my dad was a pastor. I saw a lot of people come and go from our church over the years. But there was never any ill will. There was never any shaming. There was certainly never any shunning of that family for leaving. My family would routinely see these people after they had left our church And me and their kids, my friends, would pick right up where we left off. We were still friends, we just didn't see each other as often. Contrast that with cult groups, especially the one that I left. Once you are in, you are in. And if you decide to leave, well, buckle up. If the shaming and the guilt trips don't work to keep you there, Once you do completely leave the group against the will of the controlling leader, the shunning, the smearing will definitely be an indicator that you've left a cult group. They can't have you go in peace because you decided this is not for me for whatever reason. My time here has run its course and I'm on to something else. So there's your first clue. Your second indicator is that the group you're in discourages or forbids you from interacting with other people who aren't in the group. Normal church groups don't have a problem with you going to visit someone else's church or maybe attending a Bible study at a different church, a kid's activity at a different church. For instance, when I was younger, there was a church in our community that did Awanas. It was a kids bible study type thing every Wednesday night. And that church had nothing to do with my dad's church. It was completely separate. I'm not sure what their doctrinal beliefs were and if they were similar or different. But we went to Awanas at a different church and that was fine. No issues. When you contrast that with cult groups, if you do not attend their children's service, their bible study, If you interact with other people outside of the group, and God forbid you interact with quote-unquote lost people, the world, apostates, the dreaded atheist, you are mocked, belittled, made fun of, guilted into oblivion for simply making a decision to spend some of your time with other groups of people outside of this group. Those are two rules of thumb that really don't need much of an explanation. If you see that behavior in the group that you're in, that's your indication that you might need to start paying a little more attention. But those aren't the only two factors. I wish, again, that it was that easy. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to go through each and every line of the byte model and the influence continuum so that we can know exactly what to look for. And again, we're playing a game of golf. Imagine in your mind two columns, a yes and a no column. Each one of these lines, each one of these behaviors, go into either a yes or a no column. Let's go ahead and dive into the byte model. We'll start from the beginning. We'll go line by line. And as we go along, just think to yourself, is the group I'm in, whether it be religious or political or some other ideological group, how many of these aspects go into the yes column? So let's keep that in mind and start to unpack the bite model of authoritarian control by Dr. Stephen Hassan. Behavioral control. Number one. Regulate individual's physical reality. This is when the leader makes a conscious effort to distort and reframe the member's physical reality. Number two, dictate where, how, and with whom the member lives and associates or isolates. The leader will tell the members who they can be friends with, who they can work with, who they can talk to on the internet, who they can be with in relationships, and even the relationship they can have with their own children or other family members who might not be inside of the group. Number three, when, how, and with whom the member has sex. For some reason, a lot of cult leaders have an obsession with sex, sexual desires, sexual impurities and thoughts, pornography, masturbation, Everything sex-related. Outside of the apostates, there are few groups that are more hated by many cult leaders than the LGBTQ community. They absolutely cannot stand these people. And in some extreme cases, as we see within the INFB, they actually want these people executed. Within my former group, I have personally witnessed two people who have come out as part of the LGBTQ community and were immediately and viciously removed from the group, shunned into oblivion, and to this day are still being mocked, ridiculed, and belittled whenever possible for being who they are as people. I have hours of content just related to this specific topic that we will get into in more detail in future episodes. Number four, control types of clothing and hairstyles. We see this in a lot of fundamentalist cults like the FLDS. Women will be dressed from head to toe, because in their belief, a lot of the times, if a man lusts after a woman, it's the woman's fault. She's the one in the wrong because too much of her skin was showing. So they will cover them up literally in a burlap sack. Number five, regulate diet, food and drink, hunger and or fasting. We see an example of this in the Moonies cult. Back when Nixon was being impeached, a large group of the Moonies went to the Capitol and fasted for three days on instruction from their leader. Within these circles, the leader may tell you that fasting and the pain and discomfort that comes with that will bring you closer to God in some way. Number six, manipulation and deprivation of sleep. If you listen to some of the former members of groups like Hillsong Church or Kent Hoven's Dinosaur Adventureland in Alabama, you'll hear countless stories of former group members recounting their time with the group, and the total lack of proper sleep because their duties to the group were so great and so demanding. We'll dig more into this topic specifically in a later episode, but if your group is demanding you to sacrifice necessary sleep and proper rest for any reason, pay attention, you're probably in a cult. Another quick example of this is when I was a police officer, I worked night shift for a large majority of my career. For five years straight, I worked the weekends from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So when I would get home from work about 7 a.m., I was coerced to lay down on the couch for an hour or two, try to get a cat nap, and then I was expected to get up, go to church service, then go back home, maybe get another hour or two nap before going in for another 12-hour shift as a cop as we'll start to see the common theme of, we're not saying you have to, but you better. You can sleep instead of coming to church service, but if you do... Number seven, financial exploitation, manipulation, or dependence. We see this in a lot of different groups on a lot of varying different levels as far as how much money you're required to give them, but in almost every cult that I'm aware of, There is some sort of financial requirements from the members to the leader. Number eight, restrict leisure, entertainment, and vacation time. I could fill up ten episodes of this podcast just discussing the restrictions on entertainment that my group was subjected to by the leader, and we will get into that at a later time but they want absolute control of everything you do in your off time. The music you listen to, the movies you watch, the video games you play, the places you go, the things that you do. Even vacation time was very heavily controlled, and still is to this day. Once a year, the leader determines a week at the beach. All members are heavily encouraged to take their vacation at the same beach during the same week within the same general vicinity so that everyone can still get together and participate in group activities. You can't even go on vacation with your family without this group constantly breathing down your neck. Some groups take it a step further and don't allow vacation time at all under any circumstances. Number nine major time spent with group indoctrination and rituals and or self-indoctrination, including the internet. This comes in the form of the leader sending publications, articles, emails, homework, so to speak, to the members throughout the week. It was often said from the pulpit, here's your homework for the week. And again, you don't have to do it. But if you show up the following week and the leader says, so who did the homework from last week? Let's see a show of hands. And your hand didn't go up. Well, what was so important in your life that you couldn't do what we asked you to do? Number 10, permission required for major decisions. Many of these groups require you to run any major life decisions by the leader So that they can have their influence and opinions injected into your personal life and your personal decisions. I've often told people that one of my biggest mistakes was marrying into a family where I didn't marry my ex-wife. I married her entire family. Specifically, her father. He decided what we did as a couple. We never had freedom as a couple To make our own decisions because every time we had even a minor decision to make about something in our lives. We were summoned to his property. He has an office in the back of his house. With a big long black couch. That sets across from his desk. I call it the casting couch. You sit down. You tell him your plans. All the details that you can possibly give him. And then he will tell you what he thinks you should do or not do. Now, there's an illusion of freedom. You make your own decision. I'm just telling you my advice. But I know from personal experience what happens when you go against his decision on something that you have to do in your life. A decision that you have to make personally. Because again, remember, they own you. You don't get to make your own independent decisions they make them for you number 11 rewards and punishments used to modify behaviors both positive and negative this could be something as simple as recognition from the pulpit or you may be punished from the pulpit
1: we don't even like to pray publicly
0: Uh, who would like to pray tonight
1: i mean i know I know you don't see it from my vantage point, but on Tuesday night, I'll ask, I ask that question after we take prayer requests, who would like to pray? And it's shocking the people who disconnect eye contact. They're listening to everything. Last Sunday, for example, um, or last Tuesday, I asked the very question, who would like to pray? And the two shyest people in the entire church prayed. The the ones that are so afraid of standing up, they get really nervous. Show something on the inside. I appreciate that. I mean, I do. I was was greatly encouraged with that.
0: Number 12. Discourage individualism and encourage group think. For those of you in these environments who understand what this statement means, it is literally like 1984 and the two minutes of hate. You are not your own person anymore, and you surely have no ability to make your own decisions or think for yourself. If you color outside of the lines, well, again, good luck with that. Number thirteen, impose rigid rules and regulations. This applies to all areas of life. And again, we'll do a whole episode on the control and manipulation of what a member does in their personal lives. And how they relentlessly demand control over every aspect of the member's lives. Number 14, punish disobedience by beating, torture, burning, cutting, rape, or tattoo and branding. Number 15, threaten harm to family and friends. Number 16, force individuals to rape or be raped. Number 17, Encourage and engage in corporal punishment. I'll never forget this. When I left my former faith and began learning that a lot of the things that I did within that faith were harmful, including the physical spanking of children, I remember being told directly, If you don't spank your kids, I will. That's the level of control that these cult leaders have on their followers. If you don't beat your children for stepping out of line, then I'm going to step in and beat your children. By the way, just a little side note on that, I would highly discourage that behavior. And if anyone, including my former cult leader, ever puts his hands on my children, well, that's a story for another time. Number 18, instill dependence and obedience. Again, we see this constantly throughout the behaviors of a lot of cult groups. You are nothing without the leader, without his guidance and his knowledge and his expertise. You're the lowly sheep. He's the shepherd. You are to obey him blindly. It doesn't matter how big or how small the issue at hand Blind obedience to the leader is all that counts. Disobey him, and watch how quickly your life's destroyed. Number 19. Kidnapping. Number 20. Beating. Number 21. Torture. Number 22. Rape. Number 23. Separation of families. This is one of the most painful and destructive aspects of behavioral control when it comes to cult groups. I've personally been completely ostracized from my family. He continually encourages my children to be done with me because I have, quote, been turned over to demons, a reprobate mind. I've been deceived. I'm a narcissistic apostate. He's told my children, and others in the congregation to be done with people like me. Here's a clip. They
1: are ruthless. They are deceptive. They are horrific people. And the psychological societies say there's no cure. The only thing you can do if you're in a relationship with a narcissist is run.
0: These groups thrive on breaking up families. And this is done for a very specific reason. When the family unit is broken up, it leaves a void, especially for young children. They need a father figure, and because they no longer have one, the cult leader steps in and fills that role. He tells the children, Your father has no more authority over your life. Your father's to be dead to you. I will now be your father figure. I will now raise these children as my own. Your father is an apostate, and he has lost his right to be your father. That's the sick and twisted mind of a lot of these cult groups. And tearing a family apart is quite possibly the sickest, most twisted, and demented thing one can do to another human being. 24. Imprisonment. And 25. Murder. So those 25 behaviors are what make up the behavioral control, or the B section, of the bite model. I hope that with breaking down each one of these behaviors and giving some examples like I've just done, that you're starting to see the type of behaviors that come with a cult group. If you were keeping track of points, like we discussed earlier with the analogy of the golf game, how many points did your particular group score under the B section of the bite model. Was it half? Was it a quarter? Maybe it was two-thirds. Or, God forbid, it was all of them. If that's the case, please seek help immediately. In all fairness, the group that I left did not engage in all of these behaviors. Things like physical beatings, tortures, and rape, up to and including murder, some sort of confinement or imprisonment for stepping out of line, kidnapping, and holding people against their will for disobeying were fortunately something that my group did not participate in. So as behavioral control relates to the Church Without Walls, led by Steve McCraney, we have a score of 15 out of 25. So does that make it a cult? Unfortunately, it's a little more complicated, but with a score of 15 out of 25, it leans much more cultish than not when it comes to the behavioral control of the members. I hope this breakdown's been helpful, and I hope you've all learned something. Even if you're not in a cult group yourself, maybe you know someone who is, or maybe you're considering joining a group and you now have some tools and some resources to help determine if this is how this group acts, should I really be getting involved with it in the first place? Is this going to be beneficial for me as a person or detrimental to me or my family? Take this information. Compare these behaviors to real-life scenarios that may be in your life or someone you know's life, and start using this information as power to expose these groups, and to distance yourself from these groups. In the first episode, I explained there'll be a clue at the end of every episode. I should have put one in the first episode, and I didn't. I have plenty of them, and I'm not really sure why. So, since there wasn't one in the first episode, I'm going to give you a two-for-one today. The first one is just going to be a clip. A lot of these are. There'll be a various destructive groups and cult leaders. A lot of them will be from my own personal experience. And like I said in the first episode, I'm not here to try to smear these people, but I'm here to shine the light on their behavior. This clip does need a little bit of context as he's getting ready to describe someone named Justice. Justice is Steve's only son Justice is heavily involved in the cult, and from all appearances, it appears that when Steve passes away, Justice will take the reins, and in my opinion, in his mid-30s, is more extreme and unhinged than even his father is in his nearly 70s. But that's who Justice is, so let's listen to this clip with that context, and then we'll unpack it a little bit.
1: When we were meeting at the Pendergrass Barn, I remember um, I was trying to explain what it meant that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Remember? We think that means, oh, confess Jesus. I believe in Jesus. That's not what it meant. And I called Justice up to the front, and I had him get on his knees, and I took a big old butcher knife, and yes, I turned it around so the dull side was towards his neck, although Galen wasn't so sure, and I put it right up to his neck, and I pulled his head back like I was going to just slit his throat like a, like a Muslim does an infidel, and I'm pulling it right there, and I say, confess who Christ is at the cost of death. That's what that passage meant when it was being written by Paul. It's that
0: kind of confession. So it should go without saying that if the leader of your group ever bring someone up front during a service, has them get down on their knees in front of everyone, including, by the way, at least two dozen children who are under the age of 13 years old. Matter of fact, you can hear a baby crying in the background while he's discussing this incident two different times in the clip I just played. This is because they are a family-integrated church, and that is destructive on its own level and is a whole different topic for another day. But this was done in front of the congregation. He even references it causing one of the congregants to be uncomfortable. But he yanks his kid's hair back with a knife to his throat, giving a demonstration of extremism. If you see this kind of behavior, or anything that even closely resembles this kind of behavior in your group, well, like he said in the clip earlier, the only thing you can do is run. That's your first red flag. That's your first clue. If you see behavior like that in your group, this is pretty painfully obvious, but it's time to go. That is not normal and is dangerous, especially in the presence of young kids. The second clue for this episode sort of ties into the fact that I just played one of Steve's audio clips. We'll get into a whole other episode in great detail about how controlled members within the group are when it comes to even speaking negatively or saying something that the the leader does not like. And how negative of an impact that can have on your life. But the long and short of this is, one of my preteen children told me, and by the way, she's not a law expert. She's not even a teenager. I highly doubt she understands the things of civil court, which means this was told to her. But she told me straight up after the first episode came out, if you use Papa's name, He's going to sue you. If I so much as utter his name as if that's some sort of crime, the despicable and cowardly part about it is you sent my 12-year-old child to tell me, if you say something I don't like about you, I'm going to sue you. So, the second big clue that you should be looking for is if you're in a group and someone says something even remotely negative or just neutral about the cult leader and they retaliate with things like that, especially using someone's children to try to leverage emotional manipulation to get them to stop saying or doing things that expose the corruption and the insanity of the group, That's a big clue. And just for the record, there is nothing that I'm saying in this podcast that I have not either experienced firsthand and seen with my own eyes and ears, or things that have come straight out of Steve McCraney's mouth, things that have come out of all these other cult leaders' mouths. This is not an opinion piece. This is my personal experience with these people as well as everything that they say on their podcasts, in their books, on their videos. So this is your words. These are your behaviors. If you would like to sue me for exposing how you really treat people, be my guest. Because the best thing about lawsuits, we get to bring in former congregants that have been treated horrendously, we get to go into all of these extreme beliefs in a courtroom in front of a judge that will then be public record for anyone in the world to come see. One final thought on the matter. Everything that I'm doing on this podcast and what I will be doing in the future with video content as well is covered under the United States Fair Use Code. 17 U.S.C. 107 clearly lays out that one can use someone else's material for criticism, reporting, teaching, and parody, and that it does not infringe on any copyright that may exist. Steve McCraney is a public figure with a public platform, a public website, inviting people to his public church. He posts his sermons. He's published his own books and he posts them all over the internet for the world to see what he believes and why. Under the fair use doctrine, I am 100% protected by the constitution of this country to use portions of his material for the purposes of criticizing, reporting, teaching, and parody. I have done nothing wrong, and I am fully prepared to go to court to demonstrate the fact that not only have I done nothing wrong under the law, but that the things that I am saying about this group are 100% true, both in his own words and my firsthand experience and testimony under oath. So, with that being said, there's your two red flags for this episode. In closing, my recommendation is Dr. Stephen Hassan's 1988 book. Combating Cult Mind Control. You can buy it new in paperback for less than $20, or for your Kindle for $10. And those proceeds go to help Dr. Hassan continue his work to combat destructive groups, undue influence, and cult behavior. The book is 392 pages, and depending on how quickly you read through books, it may take you a little while to get through it. If you're an audible learner, or you don't have time to sit down and read 400 pages, grab the audiobook. You can get it for free with a three-month Audible trial on Amazon. And this method will be faster and more efficient, especially if you benefit from learning in an Audible way. So that's my recommendation. I want to thank each and every one of you again for being here. If you've made it all the way to the end of this podcast, I cannot express to you how grateful I am. So until next time, my name is Seth, and this has been the Ambushed Apostate Podcast.